Hey, thank you, Josiah. I appreciate that. So we're in a series we're calling Follow. And what we're going to discover today is that followers of Jesus do what he says. They put his teaching into practice. And we're going to look at the stakes and how high they truly are. Because in this story that we just read, Jesus tells a story about two houses, right? One house stands through the storm, the other house does not. So this begs the question for followers of Jesus. What kind of follower do you have to be to build a life and an eternity that is indestructible? What do you have to do over the course of your life? Now, any time that I teach through this parable, I think of a story that my mom used to read to me when I was a little boy. And like this story that Jesus tells, like this parable, all the characters in this story are builders. They each construct a house. There are three of them. And every house that they build faces a test. If the house is built wisely, it stands. If it's built foolishly, it falls. Anybody want to recognize what that story is? Yeah, three little pigs, a lot of Purdue grads in the room. I'm not surprised at all. Listen, I'll pick on IU next week, okay? So in that story, every pig builds a house, and every house faces a storm in the form of a wolf. So one day, the big bad wolf comes, right? And he says, little pig, little pig, let me come in. And the little pig says what? Yeah, not by, I just want to see if I can make you guys say that. And you fell for it. Well done. So Jesus tells us this story that's very similar to the story that we're told when we're children, right? But in Jesus' story, there are only two houses. And it's uh, one of those stories where there's really two stories side by side. So the best way to understand what Jesus is getting at is to ask a couple of questions. First of all, what do these two stories have in common? And then where's the variable? Where's the thing that's different? Because that's going to be the hinge for the whole story. So what we find uh, these stories have in common is that you have two people and they both build a house. That detail does not vary. It's not optional. And this is important to understand because we're all house builders, every single one of us in this room. So to understand what Jesus is getting at, if you would replace the word house with the word life or the word soul. So in other words, we're all, we're all building a life and we're all tending to a soul in one form or another. Now, we don't talk a lot about the word soul in our culture because we're a culture that's very fixed on the here and on the now. But it's a vitally important word because your soul is that part of you that is going to go on after your body fails. It is that part of you that is eternal. And make no mistake about it, at some point, all of our bodies will fail. We might even call that moment the final storm that any of us will have to face. And the materials that you build your life with are the choices that you make every single day. And according to Jesus in this story, 
these choices can either be wise or they can be foolish. So there's a wise builder and a foolish builder. And every day we construct, we're building our lives based on the choices that we make, good or bad, deliberately or casually, with wise choices and with foolish choices. And what's so fascinating to me is that this isn't a moral issue. Jesus isn't saying, hey, it's a moral issue to follow me. He's saying, look, if someone follows me and does what I say, they're wise, they're savvy, they're smart, they get it. On the other hand, if people refuse to listen to me, refuse to obey my teaching, they're foolish. They're trying to build their lives on shifting sand. So I wonder, how many of you here have ever made a foolish choice? Now, don't raise your hand yet uh, because uh, I want to I run through a few categories first just to jog your memory. So, so if you've ever made a commitment that you wish you hadn't, if you've ever said something that you'd like to have back or that you needed to apologize for, if you've ever dated or even married someone that you wish you hadn't, if you've ever made an impulsive buy that you came to regret, if you've ever made a decision that led to unpleasant or even terrible consequences, or maybe you started something that you wish you hadn't, or maybe you you started something that you wish you'd finished. So now I'll ask you, how many of you have ever done or said something foolish? Now listen, if your hand's not up, um, denial's not just a river in Egypt, right? Listen, the reason I say this is because here we, we got to know this. Foolishness is in all of us. We all do and say foolish things from time to time. And it's so important to know this because we can be wise or foolish as we build our lives, build our houses. And these choices, especially the foolish ones, matter a lot, especially when the storm comes. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually uses the same analogy that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 7, the analogy of Jesus or obedience to Jesus as the foundation. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 3, you need to get that. Somebody needs to get that. I'm just kidding. Don't get that. All right, so 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 15. If any man builds on this foundation, what foundation is he talking about? The same foundation Jesus is stating in Matthew 7, the foundation of obedience to him. If any man builds on this foundation using gold or silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. So we know the context for this is rewards, not salvation. In fact, look what he goes on to say. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved but only as one escaping the flame. So you get the idea that the flames are so close to this person, it burns everything they have, everything they're wearing, but they escape and make it through into eternity, into heaven. And remember that in this story, so, so I, it's important to understand that this is a passage talking about uh, we're going to be scrutinized. 
for the things that we do, the choices that we make, the things that we say, the things that we don't say. There will be a day when all of these choices will be evaluated in order to determine our reward, what we're going to take into eternity with us. And remember that in this story Jesus tells, both the wise builder and the foolish builder build houses. Building a life or tending to a soul isn't optional. Everyone does it. Everyone builds a life and tends a soul. Everybody. And sometimes people do incredible things with their houses. So how many of you have ever been to the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. I want to talk a little bit about the Biltmore Estate. It was built by George Vanderbilt over a six-year period from 1889 to 1895. Its construction at the time was unprecedented. In order to facilitate such a large project, a woodworking factory and a brick kiln, which produced 32,000 bricks a day, were set up at the beginning of the operation. Furthermore, there was a three-mile railroad spur that was constructed to, build, to bring materials to the building site. Construction on the main house that lasted six years required 1,000 laborers and 6,000 stonemasons. It's just incredible. It was uh, and still is the largest privately owned home in the United States. It has four acres of floor space. When Vanderbilt built the home, he went all over the world collecting uh, tapestries, carpets, prints, linens, decorative objects, all dating to as early as the 15th century. And then he stuck all that stuff in his house. Uh, that four acres of floor space includes 35 bedrooms, 43 bathrooms, because, you know, you just never know when you may have to go. It originally sat on 146,000 acres of property. But here's the thing about a home like this. It's very expensive to maintain and own, even for someone with the last name Vanderbilt. So stressed by the congressional passage of the income tax and the expensive maintenance costs of the estate, Vanderbilt had to sell off, agreed to sell off 87,000 acres to the federal government, but he would not live to complete that sale. He died unexpectedly in 1914 from complications from an emergency appendectomy. And that, my friends, was his final storm. That is a storm that awaits every one of us in this room. His widow and his daughter, who was born in the house, would become entangled in that home, which required far more work and maintenance than either of them had to give. In fact, when his daughter Cornelia left this estate in 1932, she never went back. And there's a lot of theories as to why, but one of those theories says she was so stressed out, so burned out, so overwhelmed with the needs of the estate that she just washed her hands of it. She couldn't muster up the energy to come back. So here's my point. We all make choices. 
We all do. But then we have to live, every one of us, with the consequences of those choices. Vanderbilt had an amazing house. But even having built an amazing house, lived an amazing life, traveled all over the world, he, like every single one of us, had to face a final storm. And it came much sooner for him than he he anticipated, and his money couldn't extend that, even for one second. So here's... Here's the deal. Nobody should face that final storm or any storm for that matter without Jesus. But like George Vanderbilt, we sometimes try, don't we, to build our lives around things, to build our lives on things, which is so ironic because we don't get to keep any of it. Here's the truth about things. We buy our things and then we get consumed by our things. In fact, according to Vanderbilt's autobiography, he, his brother William is said to have said this. Now think about this because many of us are like, I'd like to test that theory. Here's what he said. Inherited wealth is a real handicap to happiness. It has left me with nothing to hope for, with nothing definite to seek or to strive for. And some of us are like, well, I'd like to give that a try. See, the reality is that none of us will be able to stand against the current of that last and final storm that's going to blow into our lives if we face it without Jesus. And listen, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what kind of life you've constructed. It doesn't matter how big or nice your home is, how many resources you may have stored up for yourself or others. That storm is coming and there is nothing that can stop it. So the first constant in this story is we're all house builders. But there's a second constant in this story. Not only are we all building a life or constructing or tending a soul, but we're all storm facers. Both houses in these stories have to face a storm. This is not optional either. Notice his description of the two storms. The one that comes to the house on the rock and the one that comes to the house on the sand, they're absolutely identical word for word because he wants to make it clear this is not a story about how to build a house where there won't be any storms every house has to face the storm in fact note the verbiage the rain came the streams rose the winds blew and beat against that house And see, that's too bad, because we'd prefer a story, wouldn't we, about two houses being constructed in two locations. One location where maybe the winters can be a little brutal and a little harsh, but the other in a more mild climate where the sun shines more often and the storms never come. But Jesus says, look, that kind of home doesn't even exist. I mean, this is not a story about how to find someplace pleasant and nice where the storm never comes. And I know, I know, I know, there are some people in our area, probably some people in this room who are saying, but you know what? I'm smart enough. You know what? I've planned enough. I have enough resources. I've done enough planning. I can engineer a storm-free life. And Jesus comes along and says, oh, no, you can't. 
Oh, no, you can't. See, everybody builds a house. You and I, we are building an eternal soul. And everybody faces a storm. It is going to come our way, your way, my way. Maybe it's here right now. So let me just ask you a question. What are you building your life on? What's the foundation for your life? Because life is not about avoiding the storm or moving where storms don't come. So you can either build your life on the rock or you can build your life on sand. In fact, here's the way Jesus says it. Anybody who builds their life on what I say, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. Now this phrase, this is kind of a double entendre. Jesus is saying something powerful here that if you don't know the culture, it's going to go right over your head. So the temple in Jerusalem, some of you know this, the temple's built on a big rock. And one of the slang names for the temple in Jesus' day, it was often called the house on the rock. So when Jesus says, if you obey these words of mine, it's like building your house on the rock, immediately they would have turned and looked up at the temple. Wait, did he just reference the temple? Wait a minute, did he just kind of indicate that he's greater than the temple? Did he just say that this community of followers that are going to follow him as they obey his teaching, they're going to be the new house on the rock? I mean, is Jesus saying he's greater than the sacrificial system? And the answer to all those questions was, yes, that was exactly what Jesus was saying and exactly what Jesus was doing. And he was saying, I am greater than the sacrificial system because I'm going to be the final sacrifice. I'm going to be the last sacrifice. Now listen, every one of us here builds our life on something or someone. You have to make somebody your authority. Jesus says, if you do that with me, if you become my child, if you become my follower and you obey my teaching, if you do my will, he says, he doesn't say you are truly good. He doesn't say you're truly righteous. He just says, that's really smart. It's just super wise. That's a good plan. It beats every other option. Because then... Whatever storm hits you, you're built on the rock and your life is indestructible, even in the face of death, even in the face of that final storm. So what I'm saying is this, building your life on anything else, and you can build your life on anything else, you're building it on sand and one day a storm is going to come and the whole thing's going to come down. Now, the obvious question is, you know, why would this guy build a house in sand? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. How did he get into this mess? I mean, why would somebody do something like that? So what's the adjective that Jesus uses to describe him? Foolish, right? He made a, he made a foolish choice. And remember, we said earlier, this is part of the human condition. Let me give you an example. So when kids do something foolish... Parents always ask their children the same question. They've done it for centuries, 
I don't know why. It's a question designed to make sense out of the inexplicable. It's a search for meaning where meaning does not exist. The question is one word. It has three letters. What's the question every parent asks their children when they do something foolish? Yeah, why? Why did you do this? Why did you stick a popcorn kernel up your nose? Why did you throw your father's sandals on the roof? Why did you stick a screwdriver in the electrical outlet? Why were you cussing in the front yard? Why did you pee on your friend from a tree house? Why did you do this? Why did you do all those things? And by the way, those are all questions that we asked as parents in our own home while my children were growing up. See? Here's my point. I mean, look, and what do, what do our kids always say in response? When we say why, what do they always say? Yeah, who knows? I don't know what I was thinking. You know, if you were talking to the man in this story and you said, why did you do it? You know what he would say? I don't know. It just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. I don't know. I don't know why I did it. See, this is life. Hear me. Unless you choose... Listen, nobody sets out to lead a miserable life. They just become miserable as they make one foolish choice stacked on another. I mean, no couple walks down an aisle and says, hey, why don't we just start steering this thing toward divorce? They, you know, that just never happens. No one walks into a bar saying, hey, I just want to become an alcoholic. It just happens through small, concurrent, foolish choices that happen over and over and over again. No mom and dad ever have a child where the father says, you know, I think I'm going to leave a hole in my kid's heart by overworking and being away from home so much that my child hardly even recognizes me as his dad. You know, no old man carries a grudge thinking, you know, I'm just going to set my life on a course where I become a bitter, cynical old man. But that stuff happens. You know why? Because foolishness is a part of us. It's in us. It's part of the human condition. Listen, nobody sits down and plans on spending eternity in hell. But it happens. It happens. So Jesus sets forth this choice he offers it to you and he offers it to me today. He says, look, we're all house builders. We're all storm facers. So will you build your house on me? Will you build your life on me and obedience to me? Because one day the final storm of death is going to arrive and you don't want to face any storm, let alone that storm, without me. Maybe you're here this morning and there's a storm in your life right now. I don't know. Maybe it's a job problem. Maybe it's a struggle in your marriage. Maybe it's a divorce that you're enduring or about to endure. Maybe you're wrestling with anxiety or fear or discouragement or even depression. Maybe you have a child that you love so much and it's breaking your heart that you know they're going in the wrong direction. And you know, you wish you could fix it, but you can't. And that breaks your heart even more. Maybe you've lost somebody to COVID or to something else in the last year and a half, somebody that you loved and cared about. Maybe somebody has rejected you, you know, and your heart is just bleeding 
I mean, a storm comes everybody's way someday. And then the question is, what did you build your life upon? The rock of obedience to Jesus or the shifting sand of anything else? And here's why all this matters. Look at the reaction of the crowds in this story. It says they were amazed at his teaching. That's the word schmeika, and it's loaded with meaning, that word amazement. Because he taught as one with authority and not as their teachers of the law. Here's why this is so important. The way the majority of rabbis taught in Jesus' day was this. They would quote other famous rabbis. There were three or four very famous, very revered rabbis, and most of the rabbis would, 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 would teach according to a rabbi, and they would, they would quote from their authority. In other words, they would borrow their authority from another rabbi, and then they would teach his yoke or his interpretation of the Old Testament. Now, see, our rabbi said, my yoke is what? My interpretation is easy. So Jesus preaches this sermon, and all the way through this sermon that he preaches before he gets to this story, he didn't teach that way at all. In fact, he says things like this, hey, you've heard it said, but I say this. In other words, what Jesus was saying was, look, you've heard people interpret this verse this way, but I tell you this is what God really means in this verse. Or, hey, the word on the street, what most people think about this verse is A, but I say to you, B is true. A is not. See, it's incredible the authority that Jesus taught with. And then when you throw in the double entendre with the whole house on the rock thing and Jesus insinuating that he was greater than the temple and the greater than the sacrificial system, I mean, their, their minds were blown. Now, it's one thing to make a claim, right? It's one thing to say, hey, I'm greater than the temple. It's one thing to say, hey, I'm greater than the sacrificial system because I'm going to be the last and the final sacrifice. But it's another thing to back it up through your resurrection from the dead. And that's exactly what Jesus did. It was, hear this, this is so important. It was Jesus' resurrection from the dead that validated the claims he made in the Sermon on the Mount, that he was, that demonstrated he was greater than the temple and the sacrificial system. And here's what you need to know. The disciples did not follow Jesus because of what they believed. They followed Jesus because of what they saw. They followed Jesus because of what they heard. They followed Jesus because they were eyewitnesses. It wasn't about what they believed or what they thought. It was about what they saw. And as a result, they followed Jesus and they lived lives that were absolutely indestructible. Indestructible. And I'm going to talk about this. I'll talk about one of those followers in just a minute. But there's a passage that occurs a little bit later in the New Testament that flows right out of this story that Jesus tells. It's found in the book of James, and, and he's very succinct with this. Here's what he says. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Oh, this is so important. Do what it says. Now, do you know where James first heard that? He heard it from Jesus. 
in this sermon, in this story that we just came through today, this story of two houses which are exactly alike except in every respect except for the foundation of obedience to Jesus. And note something else. James says you can hear a sermon and be deceived. What does that even mean? He says, what he's saying is this, it's possible for someone to think that because they heard a dynamic message that they're somehow better Christians for it. It's easy to think that they're more spiritual than they really are. And his point is hearing a good sermon doesn't make you more spiritual. Putting it into practice is what makes you more spiritual. Doing it is what grows you. Hearing the sermon is of no value to anybody, and in fact, it will only make you walk out of the room thinking that you are better off or more spiritual than you really are. Just incredible to me. So, Let's just assume that today's message was solid. We won't call it great or dynamic or anything like that. Let's just say you heard a solid message today. What do you have to do with what you've heard? You have to do it, right? You have to go home and live it out in front of your children and go home and live it out in front of your spouse and go home and live it out in front of your coworkers and go home and live it out, live it out, live it out. This is, the, this is the hinge of the story Jesus tells. It's one thing to hear a great sermon, in this case maybe a solid sermon, but it's an entirely different thing to go out and do it. And it's the doing that matters. It's the living it out away from this place that makes not just a little difference, it makes all the difference because it's the hinge on which this whole story turns. So let me pray for you and for me and for us. Heavenly Father, would you, um, I mean, I know there there are men, women, teenagers, students in the room, and maybe we've said yes to you at some point, but the reality is, you know, we've heard some challenging messages, but we haven't always been faithful to go home and, and work it in. So God, We just confess that to you, and we say, would you help build a different church than that here? Would you build my life differently than that? I want to build my life on the rock, on the foundation of obedience to you. So, Lord Jesus, I just pray that obedience would be the word that would reign and rule at Shelbyville Community Church, that we would be better husbands, better wives, better fathers, better employers, better employees, because we were doers of the word and not merely hearers only. And Lord Jesus, there are some of us that just need to say yes to you and open our hearts and our minds to you, as Daniel talked about a little bit earlier, how he did on that day. So God, if there's somebody here that needs your forgiveness, needs you to be their forgiver, just right now, help them to just in their heart just ask you for forgiveness. And we know, God, it's not enough just to receive your forgiveness because there's foolishness in us. I mean, foolishness is part of the human condition. And so we need you to also be our leader and our guide 
so that you could lead and guide us every day and we could live out of the wealth of your resources instead of the poverty of our own. And so would you lead and guide us every single day? Help us be a church. Help us be a family. Help me be a man that would hear your words and put them into practice. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we ask. Amen. And so now, may you go and live a life that is indestructible. God bless you guys. Thanks for being with us this morning.